Is it possible to two youths? Uh, uh, to what? Uh, what was that word? Uh, what word? To what? What? Did you say youths? Yeah, two youths. What is a youth? Oh, excuse me, Your Honor. Two youths. That was Joe Pesci and Fred Gwynn in a much-quoted scene from the much-loved film, My Cousin Vinny. Hello and welcome to episode 102 of the Occasional Film Podcast, the occasional companion podcast to the Fast Cheap Movie Thoughts blog. I'm that blog's editor, John Gaspard. In this episode, we're talking with Jonathan Lynn, the director of My Cousin Vinny. But Jonathan Lynn is much more than that. He studied law at Cambridge, appeared in the Cambridge Follies, went with that show to Broadway and the Ed Sullivan Show, and played Mottle the Tailor in the original West End production of Fiddler on the Roof. Wonder of wonders, miracle of miracles, God took a Daniel once again, stood by his side and miracle of miracles, walked him through the lion's den. He wrote for television and with Anthony Jay, created Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister, two classic British situation comedies. Now, who else is in this department? Well, briefly, sir, I am the permanent undersecretary of state, known as the permanent secretary. Woolley here is your principal private secretary. I, too, have a principal private secretary. And he is the principal private secretary to the permanent secretary. <laughs> Directly responsible to me are 10 <laughs> deputy secretaries, 87 undersecretaries, and 219 assistant secretaries. Directly responsible to the principal private secretaries are plain private secretaries. And the prime minister will be appointing two parliamentary undersecretaries, and you will be appointing your own parliamentary private secretary. <laughs> Can they all type? None of us can type, Minister. Mrs. Mackay types. She's the secretary. Lynn came to America and wrote, and then ended up directing, the classic movie comedy, Clue. And he did all this by the age of 42. As the satirist Tom Lair said, It's people like that who make you realize how little you've accomplished. It is a sobering thought, for example, that when Mozart was my age, he had been dead for two years. In my conversation with Mr. Lin, we talked about what he learned from shooting Clue and went into detail about the making of My Cousin Vinny. But we started our conversation talking about his new novel, Samaritans, a caustic look at the American health system viewed through the eyes of one hospital and its staff in Washington, D.C., what was it about this story that made you think this should be expressed as a novel? I played with, I played around with it as a in, in other forms because mostly I haven't written. I mean, I've written four or five prose books. I wrote, um, you know, the complete Yes Minister and the complete Yes Prime Minister, which were enormous bestsellers. But mostly I've written, as you say, in script form, either plays, TV, or film scripts. The more I played around with this, the bigger the subject seemed to get. Um, there was no way I could explore the characters of all of these people in in, in a uh, two-hour script, which is actually not very long. You know, a screenplay mm-hmm. is 120, 120 pages. That's all pretty well spaced out. Stage play is, you know, similar length. We're talking about, you know, usually no more than an hour in each half. Especially for a comedy, you can make 
dramas last a bit longer because you're not asking the audience to be quite so on the ball and get every joke. But with a comedy, you don't want it to go on too long. You know, as the famous comedians rule, you know, leave them wanting more. And as I kept writing, I found more and more to write about. And it seemed to expand, and it seemed to me that expanding it was good. So in the end, it seemed to me that its best form would be a novel. Uh, as I was reading it, I I began to think at first, oh, this is going to be uh, a farce. It's going to be absurd. It's going to be like Catch-22. It's just going to take an idea and take it to its illogical endpoint. But then as I got into it, I realized, no, this is completely grounded in reality. And every bizarre thing that happens seems to have uh, an analog in the real world. And it, it isn't absurd. It I mean, it is absurd, but it it's not meant for that. It's it's kind of like reality. It, was that your intention? Well, yes, you're right. It is absurd, and it is reality. It's the absurd reality of the healthcare system in the United States. Not just in the United States. I mean, I come from Britain, where the National Health Service is in a state of collapse for similar reasons, uh, because everything is viewed as a business model. And patients are viewed not as patients, but as consumers. And hospitals and healthcare is viewed as something that has to, in some way, make money. It's worse here because healthcare in America costs approximately one-third more than in any other developed country in the world. In every other developed country, healthcare is regarded as a, as a right, not a privilege. So uh, the absurdity here is greater than, than anywhere else. So when you mention it, compare it to Catch-22, which, by the way, is a very generous compliment. That's a wonderful book. But that's only a little exaggerated, too. I mean, that really, that is what the military was like in World War II. It's, you, when you write comedy, you heighten things, you, you exaggerate them the comic effect. But essentially, if they're not true, the, the reader or the audience recognizes that they're not true and doesn't think it's funny anymore. Uh, and so the balance is always to keep it truthfully observed so that people recognize it and slightly exaggerated so that people laugh at it. And it is a very funny book. Um, I don't want to, to talk about it sounding like it's, it's dour or serious. I mean, the subject matter is serious, and, and it is in many cases literally life and death. I mean, I just jotted down a couple quotes that I loved, uh, referring to health care as the ultimate lottery, um, a student loan, like a diamond is forever. And then um, I know you put this in for those of us who are fans of your other work to find when Blanche says, I feel, you know what I feel? Flames on the side of my face. Yes, uh, that's a little indulgence for people who are fans of Clue. There are a lot yes. of people who really love Clue, and that seems to be everybody's favorite moment in the movie. I hated her so much. It, it, the, it, flame, flames, flames on the side of my face, breathing, breath, heaving breaths. Because I always saw Blanche, I mean, in God's production, you know, sadly, Madeleine Kahn is no longer with us. But if she was, and if we did a production of Samaritans, you know, Madeleine Kahn would be the perfect Blanche. She'd be ideal. So, you know, I just, it just, sort of came to mind that maybe that's what Blanche should say about him. Um, 
And why not have a little in-joke for the benefit of, <laughs> of fans, too? Absolutely. It's a weird thing to say about a novel, but it's really well-researched. At least it appears to be really well-researched, which isn't something you think about with a novel. I have written a couple of mystery novels that involve a magician, and it does, for me, not being a magician, involve a lot of research. So I understand that process for me. What was the process for you? Was it research first and then writing, or writing leading you down rabbit holes of research? Uh, it goes hand in hand for me. Um, the idea comes first. You know, the idea that, that the funny idea that a hospital that's, that's set by rising costs and poor management should decide that they need the head of a Vegas casino as their new CEO because he understands about check-out and check-in, beds occupied and dinners served and has no interest in healthcare. Um, that struck me as a really fun idea, as but truthful about the way the healthcare system is operating here. Then, when I was writing it, I discovered, I read a story in a paper that said, I think it's Aetna, but one of the big insurance companies, had hired as his new CEO, the CEO of Caesar's Palace. So I discovered that, that life was imitating art in that case. But what happens is that you, as you, if you get an idea, if I get an idea, I start researching simultaneously. So then I had to find out about hospitals. I knew a bit about hospitals because, well, partly I'd been a patient more than once. Partly uh, my wife taught in two major London teaching hospitals. Partly because, I, you know, I just, um, I, I have friends who were doctors um, and who were very unhappy with the way this, the situation, the system works here. And you start researching and you start talking to friends and acquaintances or people that you get put in touch with and gradually you discover things that are actually both more appalling and funnier in real life than you would probably ever have thought of if you sat at home trying to make it all up. I've, I've always found that research led me to greater comic possibilities than I had ever thought were there, anything I've ever written. I think humor is about dark subjects because it's about serious subjects. And I know we're also going to talk about My Cousin Vinny in a few minutes, but... Um, mm -hmm. You know, that's a perfect example. I mean, that's, that is funny only because of its terrifying implications that those right. two kids would have been electrocuted, would have been killed by the state if they hadn't had a peculiarly argumentative lawyer, Vinny. Right. And, uh, you know, so, and, and what makes that film both funny and compulsive viewing for people is that it is about something terribly serious. It is finally about life and death. It's a film about capital punishment, although people never talk about it in those terms, but that's at the root of it. So the answer to your question is, yes, I think that um, I think that the more serious the subject, the better the comic possibilities. What, what a special pleasure does novel writing give you that, that you're not getting as a playwright or a screenwriter or a director or an actor? Oh, the pleasure is that I only have to please myself. I don't have to worry about, you know, is there some actor who will like this part? Will somebody be, will somebody demand that this character is made more likable before they'll play it? How can we raise, you know, millions and millions of dollars in order to get this out before the public? There's all, there are all kinds of ways of putting you in a straitjacket when you're creating a play or a film or a TV series that are all to do with the fact that they cost so much money. 
and that therefore you need the approval of producers, directors, executives, star actors, and everybody else about everything. And if you're not very careful, they get compromised out of existence. And that often happens, as you know. And that doesn't happen if you're writing a book. Uh, all I have to do is please myself and then hopefully find someone who will publish it. A funny thing happened to William and Stanley on their way to college. At what point did you shoot the clerk? They got framed for murder. Whoa! The other reason for the call uh, was it's, uh, this is the 25th anniversary this year of my cousin Vinny, and I'm, I'm sure you've been involved in other interviews and events about that and will continue. But I thought it'd be kind of fun to revisit this. You were kind enough to talk to me. I actually don't know how many years ago, but there were some of the questions I wanted to ask you about it now that it's 25 years later. But to back up a little bit, so your first movie as a director was Clue, which you'd written. Every person in this room has the perfect motive. Stand back! For murder. What do you mean? Murder. But only one of these suspects is the murderer. And I know you have had before that a lot of experience on stage both as a director and an actor but it's a really self-assured directing debut it's a big movie although it's in one house but it's still it's a big movie with a big cast and a lot going on what was the biggest lesson you took away from that directing experience the biggest lesson i took away although i've not always managed to stick to it is trust my own judgment and don't don't be over-impressed by what I'm told by studio executives. There are things in Clue that I regret, that I should have changed, and I didn't because I was persuaded by the studio that that's what I should do. And as a first-time director, I assumed they knew what they were talking about. There are various examples of that, but perhaps the most obvious example is the multiple endings, which was a great mistake to release them in separate movie theaters because the whole point about the multiple endings is the ingenuity of the fact that the story could lead to three different outcomes, all of which made sense and all of which were funny. The film wasn't a success until I put them all together for the uh, video version, and it started being seen on TV. I mean, I also learned all kinds of other things that I haven't known about how to use the camera, because directing on stage is completely different, especially directing a farce, which clue is a broad comedy, because on stage you see all the characters, and your eye takes in all different sorts of action. The camera has to focus on little pieces of action one moment at a time. You can't have too many wide shots with eight or nine people in them because they all become too small. You can have some. So for me, it was a, a big lesson in learning how to photograph comedy as opposed to stage comedy. Staging it was, was not a problem for me. Making sure that I had photographed it exactly right so that, and it was complicated because there were so many people in every scene, but the geography of the scene always had to be clear. You know, people, the audience needs to know where people are. Uh, and in the case of Clue, they need to know where people are not, because that, of course, when somebody's missing, they could be the murderer. And whenever I've been left alone by the studio or by the producers to do my thing, my films have been honestly better uh, than um, when I've been subject to too much pressure from the from the, the parent company. And then we, we get into my cousin Vinny. Now, my, some of my questions are going to be based on having re-looked at your book, Comedy Rules, because there's some stuff in Comedy Rules, although it doesn't refer specifically to Vinny, 
it feels like it sort of tendentially does. And one of the things you write about there a couple times, and uh, this is, I think, first in reference to Yes Minister, is the idea of the hideous dilemma. Can you just define that for me? Well, yes, I think there has to be. A, I think all comedy needs a hideous dilemma. And, you know, in, in, in my book, Comedy Rules, I talk about it in connection with Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister because the, the politician, Jim Hacker, in those series and books, um, is like all politicians, torn between doing the right thing and doing the thing that will either advance his career or make him look better to the public or go down better with the press. And these things are nearly always fighting each other. Doing the right thing is often not the, the safest thing. And politicians are always scared of being exposed. Being in government, being in politics, is essentially about having two faces, about hypocrisy. And you never want it to be revealed that you said one thing one day and then did something else another day. Now, that rule has slightly changed, of course, since the advent of Donald Trump, who doesn't seem to care that he's caught out in a lie every day of his life, or maybe ten lies. But it matters to most politicians, and it kills their careers. Um, and Humphrey, Sir Humphrey, the senior civil servant, was also always caught in a dilemma of a similar nature. Now, in my cousin Vinny, the hideous dilemma is, is obvious. The two boys are charged with murders that we, the audience, know they didn't commit. And they have to make a choice. They have to, they hire Vinny, who has never had a, conducted a trial. He's only been qualified at the bar for six weeks. And he's never done a murder case. It's his first case. Now, they're not telling you to dress appropriately. You were serious about that? The way you handled that, Judge. Oh, you're a smooth talker. You are. It's their last chance. The two youths. Did you say youths? Yeah, two youths. What is a youth? They have to hire him because they have nobody else. This is a hideous dilemma for them. The hideous dilemma for Vinny is that he knows that if he fails, his cousin will be executed. I mean, what worse situation could he be in? The hideous dilemma for Mona Lisa Vito, Marissa Tomei, is that she's living with this guy who means well but just can't get it right. All of this is what makes it funny. You know, it could have been played as a completely straight drama right out of John Grisham, because all the elements would be the same. It's a trial movie. It's just that comedic choices are made instead of dramatic choices. But mm -hmm. you're right. It's uh, why it works. As a, most trial movies, or I mean, I don't know, there is another trial movie that's a comedy from start to finish. There are comedies with trial scenes, but most of them are rather treated rather frivolously. In Vinny... Uh, I treated this situation with the utmost seriousness, and I think that's why it's funny because it's so it's so frightening. Exactly. A another thing you mentioned in the book Comedy Rules that I think applies really nicely here is the concept of it helps to be an outsider, which Vinny clearly is, and that gives you a a great way into the story. Did your experience, sort of as an outsider, a, a, a British director working in America, was that also? Helpful. I, I, I when I look at the, sort of the history of Hollywood movies, one has to assume that that is helpful. If you look at the, at the extraordinary number of really good directors who came from Europe, 
mainly, but also from other cultures, to Hollywood. I mean, one of the best things about Hollywood, has to be said that's good about Hollywood, is that it is not at all xenophobic. It welcomes anyone from anywhere. But if you look, I mean, Billy Wilder is my favorite comedy director. He was Viennese. Fred Zinnemann was from Vienna. Milos Forman is from Czechoslovakia. Michael Cortez is from Hungary. And I, you could go on all day. I mean, a colossal number of the greatest Hollywood directors, Alfred Hitchcock from Britain, are from somewhere else. And I think it helps. I think as an outsider, you see it maybe more clearly. People always talk to me about the fact that the South is presented differently in My Cousin Vinny than in most American films. That's because I think most American films are directed by Northerners, and they see the South as some strange foreign place. To me, the South and the North, they're all just America. I mean, the differences, there are obvious differences, but they're still part of American culture, all of which is, or was at that time, foreign to me. I don't know. It, I'm one of those people who, and I'm sure you run into this all the time, who say, if you're flipping channels and my cousin Vinny is on, that's it. You're going to watch the rest of the movie. It's really nice. I feel like that about some movies. I feel like I got about The Godfather Part 1 and 2 mm-hmm. and, you know, some other movies. I mean, if I see The Godfather on TV, I happen to stumble across it. I have to keep watching. And, uh, you know, there's a, you know, there are some other movies. And it's it's very nice that some people feel like that about Vinny. Yeah, everything came together in that movie. The the script is very strong, the way you directed it. And I don't mean just where you put the camera or how you cast it. All those are great, and you have a really very clean, non-intrusive visual style, which allows comedy to play really, really well. But between the script and the directing and the way it's edited, all the pieces are there uh, as a mystery, which it is sort of. It is completely fair. Uh, all the clues are given, and they're given so subtly the how long does it take to cook grits which is an important thing is almost a throwaway line you don't even think about it it's perfectly in character for that conversation to happen just the even the shot of the boys pulling away from the store at the beginning where the curb can be seen on the left side of the screen and you don't make a point of the fact that they don't go over the curb because we don't know that's a fact but when we see the photos later we if we had any doubts at all know that wasn't their car because they didn't go over that curb. I mean, it, it's that sort of attention to detail you wouldn't necessarily see in a quote-unquote light comedy, but it's, I think it makes it uh, a perennial favorite. It's, it's because, perhaps it's because I have a degree in law, and I wanted it to be legally good, And but perhaps because I'd seen a number of trial movies that I really, really liked, like Verdict and uh, Absence of Malice, and of course To Kill a Mockingbird, and you know, there's a lot of great anatomy of a murder. All of those are films that I think are full of tension and suspense and hold the audience's attention. Mm-hmm. And I think, I felt that was important. You can't make a whole movie about a trial unless the trial is dramatically effective from start to finish. Yeah. So yes, I approached it as a drama, except that we made comedic choices all the way through. What was your rehearsal process like? Did you have time for rehearsal? No, there was no rehearsal. I discussed it with Joe Pesci, and Joe said he hated rehearsal. He felt it took away his spontaneity, and he, of course, he liked to rehearse, you know, a scene on the morning that we were shooting it, but he didn't want any advance rehearsal. Now, one of the jobs of the director, maybe the main job of the director, is just to get the best work out of all the people in the movie. If your leading actor doesn't want to rehearse, there's no point in trying to make him rehearse. 
uh, it, it won't improve the result. So we didn't have any rehearsal. And um, all the rehearsals were just on the day of each scene. Well, that sort of jumps us right to my next question, which is I'm um, going back to comedy rules again. This is rule number 140, which was, uh, remember remember the old English proverb, uh, you, you don't buy a dog and bark yourself? Talk to me about how that applies to your work as a director, because you are also an actor and you're also a writer. Well, I never demonstrate how anything should be done. I never say play it like this. I never say say it this way. I assume that the actors that I've got are high-level, high skilled professionals. And what I want them to do is bring what they can bring to something that I already have in mind and that the writer, which may or may not have been me, has already written. You know, if you, with really good actors, the leading actors, you know, you don't, um, you don't tell a movie star, this is how you play the scene and then demonstrate, because they would, you know, rightly send for their limo and go home. <laughs> You, uh, that's not what they're there for. They're there to bring what they can bring to the proceedings. And what you have to do as a director is have what, know what you have in mind and meld it with what your actors bring. And that's why casting is so absolutely critical. Because if you miscast a part, you know, it will never work. Or it will certainly never work the way you intended it to. You, you mentioned Billy Wilder and, um, I'm going to mention another rule from Comedy Rules because there's a lot of good ones in there. Rule 149 is the last part of every film and play is a race to the finish between the show and the audience, which I think is something Wilder would have agreed with. And um, you went on to add, uh, the show must get there first. One of the things that makes, I think, Vinny so successful is that when the end is there, it's there. It just... you. We zip right to the end. It, there's, you don't hang around. There's not a lot of extraneous stuff. It's like the movie's over and we're out. How hard was that to achieve? Well, it was interesting because, of course, well, that was done in the production rewrite. And Dale wrote a wonderful script, but uh, there were things that still needed sorting out. And Fox hired me to do the production rewrite. And in the original draft uh, that I was given, um, we never knew who'd committed the murders. You never knew what the real story was. So that was a problem. Uh, for me, that was a problem. You can't have a trial movie without knowing what actually happened. Now, obviously, we didn't want to see what actually happened because that would have been time-consuming and boring. That's the problem with a whodunit. That's why Hitchcock never made a whodunit, because a whodunit, there's always a scene at the end when the detective explains what really happens, what really had actually happened, and that's always really dull. I made fun of that in Clue, you know, with, with mm -hmm. the butler's ludicrous explanation of everything. But I, you know, I made it into a joke, um, because that film is a parody of a murder mystery. But in this case, we didn't need to see it all on camera, and we didn't need to know it. But we did need to know that, this, that the, the real murderers had been found and had been caught, and that it all made sense. The other thing is that we didn't want to have the jury. Once it was clear that uh, the two boys had not committed the murder. We had to get out of that trial as fast as possible. So that meant it didn't have, it couldn't go to the jury. We couldn't have a boring scene when they came back and the judge said, you know, have you reached a verdict? And yes, your honor, and reading out the verdicts and all that stuff that you see on television every week. So it meant that we had to have the prosecutor do the right thing, which was very good anyway, because 
for me, there's no bad guy. One of the most interesting things about the film, I think, is there is no villain. The court system, the justice system, is the antagonist. So we have to get out of that fast. So that meant that the prosecutor did the right thing and simply withdrew the case. He just said, you know, we're, we're not proceeding with this. So that was the end of the trial. And that meant we could get out of that trial, in terms of screen time, probably five minutes sooner mm-hmm. than, than if we'd gone through the whole thing of it going to the jury. Now, is there anything, looking back in the movie, that you wish you would have done differently? Well, actually, no. When I see the movie now, which I don't very often, but I, I you know, I have seen it occasionally, um, I'm really pleased with it, I have to say. Um, most of my films, I see plenty of things I would like to change, and that one, I think, you know, with a lot of luck, uh, we made all the right choices, I think, and I, I don't see anything I would want to change. I, I would agree. Is there anything, any consistent thing you hear from fans about that movie that if if someone mentions it, you know they're going to say this or that? No. Um, I get a lot of terrific response from judges and attorneys who all say that it's legally the most accurate film that's ever been produced by Hollywood. I, I've met a number of federal judges who, who use it in their teaching at law schools especially in the teaching of evidence. That's very gratifying. I've been asked to speak at a couple of legal conventions to federal judges and others, not about the law, of course, which they know far more about than I do, but about how Hollywood treats trials and legal films. So they're a very gratifying group of people. And then, of course, there are just favorite moments that people refer to, which always happens in films, just like you were talking about Clue and Mrs. White's line about the flames on the side of my face. It seems that a large number of people quote Vinny's line, two utes. And there are a number of other moments in the film which people refer to with great affection. May I have permission to treat Ms. Beetle as a hostile witness? Do you think I'm hostile now? Wait till you see me tonight. Joe Pesci is my cousin Vinny. You two know each other? Yeah, she's my fiance. Well, that would certainly explain the hostility. Thanks to Jonathan Lynn for taking the time to talk to me about his new book, Samaritans, as well as Clue and My Cousin Vinny. If you like this interview, you can find lots more just like it, including the transcript of an earlier interview with Mr. Lynn covering other facets of My Cousin Vinny on the Fast Cheap Movie Thoughts blog. Plus, more interviews can be found in my books, Fast Cheap and Under Control, Lessons Learned from the Greatest Low-Budget Movies of All Time, and its companion book of interviews with screenwriters called Fast, Cheap, and Written That Way. Both books can be found on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, Google Play, and Apple Books. And while you're there, check out my mystery series of novels about magician Eli Marks and the scrapes he gets into. The entire series, starting with the ambitious card, can be found on all those online retailers I just mentioned in paperback, hardcover, ebook, and audiobook formats. You can find information on those books and all the other books at albertsbridgebooks.com. That's albertsbridgebooks.com. And that's it for episode 102 of the Occasional Film Podcast, produced at Grass Lake Studios. Original music by Andy Morantz. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.